Welcome to Mosaic, the EDC podcast. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity with EDC staff around the world. I'm your host, Rachel Pascal, prevention specialist at EDC. People who experience an opioid overdose are at increased risk of overdosing again, and of that next overdose being fatal. But there are things we can do to decrease that risk. In this podcast, EDC's Gary Langus explores the role of post-overdose interventions in keeping overdose survivors healthy and connected to the people and services in their community that can keep them alive. Gary is a prevention specialist at Prevention Solutions at EDC, who has worked in communities across Massachusetts to implement post-overdose interventions. He's been a longtime advocate for active users' health and wellness. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Rachel. I think many people are now familiar with the importance of the opioid reversal medication naloxone, or Narcan, in saving the lives of people who have overdosed on opioids. But you are advocating for better services for people in the days and weeks after they've survived an overdose. Why? Well, we began doing some work with the fire department probably about four or five years ago on doing a lot of this post-overdose stuff because we realized that just throwing Narcan at the problem is not the solution. I mean, it will reduce overdose, fatal overdoses, and overdose. But we started to notice we were doing a lot of revisits. You know, we go to a house three, four times for the same person, and we decided that we had to do something else, and we took the lead from, I think it was a Weymouth Police Department who were sending out information packages to folks that had an overdose in their in their home. And we took it a step further and we decided to compile the names of the folks that overdosed in, in the community in Revere and follow up the following week to just check in with them, see how they're doing, see if there's anything that we could offer them. There was no evidence-based program to follow. This is all new, new to us and, and new to a lot of folks. So we We continue to visit the houses of the folks, and we started to engage not only the individual, but their family members, their loved ones, and then we recognized that they needed services. And that's where we had to build on our menu of services to include people impacted by overdose, not just the individual. And it's given us the opportunity to build some great relationships with families and, and the individual and the community. So this is all just a lot of reconnecting. And that works pretty well because now we're seeing some of the results after a few years. You know, like it, you don't see it overnight. And this isn't the silver bullet. It's not the only answer. But we need to expand the services that we provide to the folks that are being impacted by overdose other than just a one-shot Take them to the hospital, give them some Narcan, send them home. What's that really do for them? You know, they can yeah. continue on. So in these communities where post-overdose interventions aren't in place, what happens when an individual overdoses? Like what social and health supports are currently available to them? In most communities, there's not too much, you know, unless the community's taken the incentive to do stuff around building one of these post-overdose response teams or, or having some program like a diversion program, instead of putting people in jail, they put them in treatment, stuff like that. But right now, in most communities, a person that overdoses will go to a hospital. They get to the hospital, get treated for the overdose, maybe observed for a few hours, and then let go. They might, if they're lucky, there may be a health promotion advocate there. There might be an SBIRT program in that hospital where they provide a little information and services to the, the person that overdoses and, and their family, if the family is there. With options, they'll provide treatment options. Where do you get Narcan? 
maybe a little information on harm reduction if that community has a program in their community, but they offer very, very little as far as follow-up goes. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think people slip through the cracks they're not followed up on. So based upon your experience, talk to me about what an effective post-overdose intervention would look like. I think this starting to happen. We have three pilots in Massachusetts. They all follow the same track, which is they have harm reduction specialists, public safety officials that go out. They check in on the person. It's not like they're going to just give them a bunch of brochures with all the services and this is what's in the community. Most of it, everybody on the team is pretty schooled in what's available for that individual, the family members, the loved ones, the friends of, of folks that have overdosed. And they come with that menu like in their head of where they can answer a question that's asked by the individual or the family member. Because again, it's not pushing our agenda. It's we're following up is to see how are you doing? Have you done anything for yourself since you've overdosed? Have you overdosed again? Do you have naloxone? We try to address those needs. If the person says, well, I don't have any naloxone, we make sure they have naloxone before we leave. If it's a family member that the person, a lot of times we go to places, well, he went in, they went into detox. They're in detox. And you keep the conversation going with the, either the parent or the loved one and say, well, how are you doing? And they may say, well, you know, we've been working with them for 20 years to try to get them to go, put them in treatment. We went to court and had them sectioned into treatment, and nothing seems to work. That is when we'll, we open that little menu up and look at what services do we have available for family members. Oh, we have Learn to Cope, which is a support group for parents and loved ones of people who use drugs and opioids. We can refer them to that program. If they want to talk to somebody from the program that night, we'll make the phone call to maybe the regional manager. They have a website we can refer to. There's other kinds of support meetings that go on in some communities for folks that are dealing with the same issues. So we try to have all of that information there, and it it might not be on that first door knock because we have to do a follow-up to the follow-up sometimes. So when we leave information, we'll leave our contact information. We have a drop-in center where people can just walk into and look for information. They can get a knock in. They can get any kind of other materials they need or referrals to treatment. So we give them that. That's connected with us, so we know that that's where people can get whatever they need. And then the follow-up on the follow-up. You know, if they call us back, or we'll ask, is it all right if we check in with you in a couple of months or a month? Or do you want us to check in with you at a certain time? You know, it's up to them. And uh, and a lot of times they'll want us to get in touch with them again when their loved one gets out of detox or when they get back from treatment. And then we can start to talk and listen to that individual about their wants and their needs and try to address some of that stuff. So are there some simple things that all communities can do to put these promising programs into place? Yes, and, you know, I'd have to go back to when we started implementing these programs because one of the barriers that we were going over was the culture within the law enforcement, the fire department, and the harm reduction specialists. They weren't like, you know, it was different. They had different ways of looking at things. So we had to really build a a relationship with with the team it takes a while. So I would say if communities would like to get something going in their community is to work on building a team with the providers in that community and the public safety officials in that community 
Maybe the first things to do would be to get naloxone being carried in the units, either the police cars or the fire departments, and that's a pretty simple process. The state has funded several communities to do the work, and they supply the naloxone. That's still a possibility for some communities that are first starting out, or they can have their own medical director write a standing order that they the law enforcement can purchase from the state in bulk naloxone just to supply their units and their police cars with the naloxone. But I think the most important thing is the team building in the community and the trust between providers, both treatment providers, prevention providers, and public safety folks to find some common ground, listen to each other. It's really important, and that's what builds a strong program because if we didn't do that, From the beginning, when we first began doing our work uh, in 2009 with the fire department, I don't think it would have been sustained as long as it is now. It's a good practice, and it's and it's not simple. I mean, what 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 do you need? You need a little dedication, commitment, uh, maybe sprinkling a little bit of love and uh, compassion, and uh, you know, you're on your way. Well, thanks, Gary. I so appreciate you taking the time to talk today. You're very welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in today. For more information on programs to address opioid misuse or EDC's work around the world, visit our website, edc.org.